Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, good evening. We're in Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev, otherwise known as Joel. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, just hello to Zoom, hello in person, hello in podcast land. So our theme tonight in 1 Peter 5 is, is humble. And wasn't that one of the, didn't Templeton the rat, wasn't that one of the words he brought back for, for Charlotte's Web? <laughs> that the pig is at Wilbur, he's humble, yeah. Well, we're going to be humble. That, that's our, our goal tonight is to look at humility. And we got humble leaders and humble church and then some closing words. Uh, this is the, the final chapter of 1 Peter. And Peter just ends everything tonight. And so this is, um, this is, I just pray we're challenged and encouraged. But let's, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll get going here. God, thank you for this text. I thank you for just the ways in which it challenges us. And Lord, how we can join our stories with the early church, Lord, and what they're going through as we go through things um, in our time. And we just pray, oh Lord, that you'd be glorified tonight as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have humble leaders and humble church. So humble leaders, chapter 5, 1 to 5. To the elders among you. Now, there's going to be, in these five verses, there's going to be an elders and there's going to be younger. And it, there's various ways you can take that. Is he talking to the old people and then talking to the young people? Is he talking to people who are, because we're church people, we understand elders are in a church, you know, our elders, the office of elder. And then are they talking to elders and not elders? Are they, are they the elders and then other kind of junior-like leaders? Who, who are these people? We don't exactly know what the second one. We can offer some good guesses here. For the first one, he's talking to elders here, like the office of elder. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, and that's a capital C and a capital S there, I guess, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Peter drops uh, Proverbs 3.34 there. So we have, um, well, he's talking to the leaders here. The idea of, you know, be shepherds. And he's telling them to be shepherds. I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, okay? Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. So right away... That's how we know these are more like the office of elder. This is, I believe, the Greek word presbyteroi. This, these are like the elders of the church. Okay, these are, these are the ones who are shepherds. Shepherd, think of it in the same way as pastor. Okay, a, a pastor who is with the sheep in the pasture. Okay, so that's the idea. Be pastors. Shepherd this flock. So he's writing to these leaders that they have a job to do, and that job is to be shepherds. And shepherds need to pay attention over their flock and to be caregivers of their flock. 
And along with that idea of shepherds is a steward, because it's not really their flock. Peter is pretty explicit here. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. So that would be like the steward of the household, a high-ranking slave, the highest-ranking slave, entrusted with the family's welfare, submitting only to the master of the house and possibly the mistress of the house too. But in, in, the, in this analogy here, God is entrusting these elders, these pastors, to shepherd, to pastor the flock. Yeah, to be stewards of that. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Ah, yes, watching. Shepherds watch. They watch over in the sense of care, but they also watch over in the sense of enemies. The shepherd carries the rod and the staff for a reason. And so to watch out for the, you know, the, the wolves or the bears or whoever they were out there with. You, we remember stories of, of King David when he was just a little guy, David out in the field, and, and what, the lions and the bears and the things that would come after the flock and what he had to do in those moments. So be shepherds of God's flock, verse 2, that is under your care. And, 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 and Peter here is ascribing himself as a fellow elder, as someone who is also, you might even say this is a very humbling verse 1. This is not Peter dropping mic saying, I, I'm the Peter, I'm that guy, Jesus' main dude, and, and I, you know, I walked on water too, and I'm all these things, and I'm the man because I'm Jesus' number one guy, and on the rock they're going to build this church. Okay. He's not saying any of those things. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm a fellow elder. I'm also a witness of Christ's sufferings, which is a little ironic because Peter wasn't there, was he? Because he, he denied Jesus and we get the idea that John was at the cross because Jesus spoke to him, but Peter was not. So Peter must be using something after Jesus' resurrection, the whole idea of, of Peter being the witness of what Christ went through. Peter was certainly present at Gethsemane, Gethsemane asleep or not. He was there. He was present when Jesus was arrested, we know, because Peter got his sword out and went to work. And so he was witness of Christ's sufferings, Peter says. Who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Shepherds of God's flock under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, so, but because you're, you're willing. So we get this idea, Peter, Jesus talks about this, I believe in John chapter 10, when he talks about the good shepherd that he is, that there are hired shepherds, like a hired hand, that the, uh, like the over-shepherd kind of hires people also to farm out the work, you know, the, the after-hours guys when the main people fall asleep or something like that. And they're there because they're getting a paycheck. They're there to get something, and they're just kind of doing their thing. And that's not the image we've got here. But because you're willing, as God wants you to be. You're not pursuing gain or dishonest gain, but you're eager to serve. So be shepherds and be stewards and be pursuers. So as leaders... And you can think of this as yourself. You may not be a leader in a church, but you are an, an influencer in your life. You have people that you have influence over. Even as a servant, you're able to influence. What is your goal? Is your goal to gain something? I mean, not even the dishonest gain. That's going, evidently, there were some really, you know, rapscallions he's referring to that has you know, pursuing a dishonest gain. Or I guess it would be dishonest saying, you know, I'm not really in the ministry for the money, but the money sure is good, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe that would be dishonest. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. So what are you pursuing? Are you pursuing opportunities to serve? 
Now, you may not be an elder, we just said that, but, but you, what are you pursuing in your life? I think it's a fair question to ask. I mean, it's the same idea where Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. There's just something about that attitude. Okay, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, so be leaders. Leaders, not lords. Leaders, serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you. These are people receiving this letter that Peter wrote in Asia Minor. This is the Roman Empire. I mean, even Jesus talked about this. The Gentiles like to lord it over people, don't they? But not so you. So we have the Roman world and Caesar and all his minions and various trickle down, and they all can lord it over everybody because Rome wields a sword. But that's not how the church is supposed to be. Don't lord it over people. There's something about your leadership. Be leaders who are examples, not leaders who are just simply lords. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. So it, Peter's not saying, hey, you don't get anything in this ministry. He's not saying, no, you don't ever get paid. No, you don't ever get any kind of reward. Or no, you're not ever going to get any kind of good thing from the ministry. No, he's saying you're going to get something really good. It's just going to be that crown of glory when Christ appears. You're doing it for the crown, not for the, not for the riches now. You're going for the eternal riches in Christ Jesus, not for the temporal riches and glory that we think we have now. And oh, if leaders were that way. Oh, if it was that way in the church. I'm not speaking of the church I pastor at. We have some really good leaders here. But we've all heard stories. We all grew up in the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and all that kind of... We all grew up with all those, those, those really horrible stories of preachers and prophets and all these charismatic, you know, figures that were popular, you know, kind of, yeah, celebrity pastors, and yeah, they, it causes us to wonder, eager to serve, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I love that. He began his work with this living hope that doesn't fade. He's ending it with this hope that we're going to get a crown of glory one day that's not going to fade. And then he talks to the younger crowd. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Okay, so be submitters. So be shepherds, be stewards, be pursuers, be leaders, and be submitters. As Christians, we ought to be really good submitters. We submit as unto the Lord because we're submitting to God. And anytime I meet anybody that has a really hard job submitting, my first question is usually, how are you with Jesus? Do you submit to him? Because I bet if you're struggling with submission in other areas of your life, whether it's your boss, whether it's you know, in a marriage, whether it's in, your, uh, in certain you know, relationships, are you able to submit to Christ? So we have this idea here of submit yourselves to the elders. That's really hard. That's hard if you think you're right and you think they're wrong. Because you're going to all of you, the whole church here, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So be shepherds, be stewards, be pursuers, be leaders, be submitters, and, and, and live in a manner that God approves, not opposes. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I recommend you have an attitude that God likes and not that God opposes. If you're, if you're going to do anything with your life, start with humility. 
because God seems to really, really like humility. I mean, if nothing else in a Philippians 2 way, that's how it was described Jesus. Being humble. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Live in a manner that God approves, not opposes. We don't want God to be your enemy by, by just your very attitude. Man, okay, it says humble leaders, 5, 1 to 5. Now the humble church, 5, 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be, be alert and of sober mind. This is now the second time you've said this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Oh, wow. Looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Wow. That's kind of like the mic drop. The dropping the mic at the end of the letter here. Great little doxology at the end. So we have the humble leaders at the beginning here. Now we have a humble church. He's kind of speaking to everybody here. Um, underneath the hand that lifts you. What is that all about? Well, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. It doesn't say under God's mighty thumb. Some of us feel like we're under the thumb of God, like God just kind of squishing us down there. You may have had to suffer. We discussed last week's suffering, and the third option for suffering, remember the first one was you've broken the law, the second one is you're being persecuted, or the third one is it is God's will for you to suffer. And here we have God's hand. And this, this imagery here is just kind of reminds us that this could be God's hand of, you know, of, 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 like God is extending his hand mighty. And uh, sometimes in scripture that's in delivering ways. Other times is, you know, God has a mighty right arm and the enemies of God feel that. And so I don't know if this is you're under God's hand as if you are suffering according to the will of God. That was the last chapter, verse 19. That idea, can you still find him faithful even though you suffer? But also, you're underneath this very hand that you may be suffering now, but in your humility, God is going to lift you up. You know, that humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. Okay, that's what we're seeing here. This comes from this verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. There's a humility in a moment like that that says, thy will be done. Even if thy will is hard, even if thy will be done is just really, really hard, I'm going to trust you, God, no matter what. That Lauren Daigle song, I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust in you. Yeah, that was a song during Jen and my last pregnancy. It was a hard pregnancy. And we just sang, she just sang that song a lot. We're going to keep trusting, we're going to keep trusting. You may be going through something really rough. You may feel like you're under God's hand. You may not feel like you're lifted up yet. Humble yourself. Have an attitude that says, God, you first. Jesus had a very rough garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? And he said, not my will, but yours be done. You know, Father, take this cup, but if it's not your will, fine. I, I, I want to do your will. I'm paraphrasing there. The humility of Jesus in that moment. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Casting upon the carer. I love this verse. You see, this verse is kind of like a tension. Because those of us who have anxiety, 
We, we have this idea, you know, from like a biblical counseling standpoint, we have like a Philippians chapter 4 that says, don't be anxious. So I read that. If I just stop there, I'm thinking, well, I'm a pretty rough Christian if I'm anxious. If I'm anxious, if I have anxiety, boy, I must not be much to write home about because the Bible says don't be anxious. Okay? That's the first leg of the tension. The second leg of the tension is cast all your anxiety on him. Oh, so I still have anxiety, don't I? Yeah. But guess what? Cast that. The cast that fishing net. You're just tossing it. Everything is going out of your boat and into that water. Cast all your anxieties upon the carer, the one that cares for you. This is a great step for anybody with anxiety. At some point in Philippians 4, in fairness, talks about, you know, don't be anxious, but it talks about prayer and petition and submission and, that, and go, turning it to God. Okay, fair enough. That's the context there as well. But here, it's assuming you have anxiety or anxiety might be present because all of your anxiety needs to go to God. Cast it on him because he cares for you. I love, love, love as a care pastor that God is like a care pastor. He cares for you. It's not cast all your anxiety upon God because he can take it. It's not cast all your anxiety upon God because why not? It's not cast all your anxiety upon him because, you know, you got nothing else to do. It's he cares for you. This is you going right to the manager and saying, I'm lamenting, I'm caring, I'm going right to you, God, because you actually can't handle it. And you can provide for me. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. I'm not going to sing, but my mother tells me that that was a solo I sang when I was eight or nine in a church function. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all my burdens down at your feet. And even when I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. And it has a strange octave jump there that I will break windows singing now. But I still remember I was on stage as a little kid singing something to Salty the Songbook or something like that way back in the day. But yes, this verse, cast all your anxiety on him. This anxiousness of you, the worrying part of you, the fear that just keeps marinating in your crock pot. Cast that upon God because he cares for you. That itself, that's one of the greatest verses in any kind of care ministry. That great reminder that God cares. He's not just our king. He's a king who cares. You can take your junk to him. He'll let you dump it on him, cast it on him. Man, I love that. But guess what? God's not the only one that's interested in the believer, is he? There's someone else that has an interest in the believer as well, doesn't he? Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I listened to my friend Mick's teaching of this last week. He mentioned that Jesus is listed as a lion, and now so is Satan. But one's a lion that delivers, the other one's a lion that devours. Mm -hmm. So be alert and sober mind. This is no time to fall asleep, Christian. Your enemy, the devil. Alert, you are being looked for. 
your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, theologically speaking, we belong to Christ. The word for devour is a similar word that, that in Hebrew is kind of like how when, the, when the, that great fish or that big sea monster, the whale, swallowed Jonah. That's the image we have here. Just one big gulp and you're gone. Okay? Theologically speaking, we who belong to Christ, I don't agree that Satan can, can eternally touch us in that way. But you see... When a Christian goes through suffering, when a Christian goes through pressure, when a Christian is going through intense things, it's either because of something internal, like an apostasy or a falling away, or those desires that they're not hanging up, they're actually holding on to. It's because of something internal or something external, some kind of persecution. Or the third category, I guess, would have to be demonic. Now, so many Christians want to go, oh, Satan's attacking me, Satan's attacking me. Maybe. I don't know. That's usually not where I go to first. Where I go to first is, do you think Satan's attacking me right now? Well, can we talk about your sin first? Because that makes a lot more sense in your context. Can we talk about what's going on inside of you? Okay, after that, can we talk about people in your life? Are you being persecuted by chance for his name's sake? I'm just saying. And after we talked about those two, sure, let's go to the demonic. It is a category, and it's a fair category. Jesus said they oppressed him, the world. Well, who's the kingdom of, who's the king of this world, as it were? It's, <laughs> I mean, Peter's not mincing words. He's like, a, he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It doesn't say that he will devour. He doesn't say that he has the power to completely devour you, Christian. But it says he's looking for that. He wants to make your life probably literally a living hell. Because that seems to be his currency, right? This doesn't say that Satan's going to win. It says be alert. You're being looked for. Wow. But then verse 9, resist. Resist him. So evidently, if I see a lion, the last thing I'm going to focus on is resisting. I mean, for real, if a prowling, roaring lion is just coming after me, I'm going to focus more on running. Uh, I'm going to focus more on getting in my car and driving. I'm going to focus more on looking for the nearest weapon or something. I'm going to focus on, you know, putting on my running shoes or, and, and hopefully the guy next to me doesn't have running shoes. Resisting? Are you really going to resist a lion who's intent upon eating you? I mean, you get a loud dog in your neighborhood attent upon barking at you. I mean, now imagine a big old lion. A big old dog is nothing against a big old hyena. And a big old hyena is nothing size-wise on a lion. Imagine a lion. Resist? Yeah. What do you mean resist? We resist by firm unity. What? Yes. Resist. The very next verse, hey, you've got this enemy, your devil, a prowling lion looking to devour you. Crispy critters, you're done at that point. Oh my gosh. Resist him. Comma. Standing firm in the faith. What's that in Revelation 12? Talking about the, the enemy of, of our brothers has been cast down. And we, they, they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. There's something about... The, the, the word of their testimony side of it, the blood of the lamb, that Jesus won the war, but we resist. 
or the armor of God passage. We've got these principalities and this demonic horde coming after us and firing these flaming arrows at us. And how do we fight? We really don't. How many times in Ephesians 6 does Paul just simply say, stand, stand firm? And we get the idea that the Roman soldiers, when they locked their boots and they stood in their line and locked their shields together and they marched, that they didn't lose. It was the idea of them standing firm. Paul says, and above all else, stand. So here we are, resist him, standing firm in the faith. That's huge. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. So underneath the hand that lifts you, casting upon the carer, alert you are being looked for. Resistance is firm unity. We stand firm and we stand unified together. When the church undergoes suffering and persecution, the church's one response is standing firm in Christ, standing together. Then God has three things here. We got like the past work of God, the present or future work of God, and the eternal aspect of God here. Verse 10. And the God of, of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. I like that. What's the past work of God? God called you. Remember those who called, he, he, he foreknew, those he foreknew, he predestined. Okay, predestined those. Okay, so you have been called according to God's grace. It is by grace you have been saved. God called you from death to life. You were Ephesians 2, dead in your sins, but God called you. That's it. So he's reminding these beleaguered Christians, these suffering Christians, that God once called them. They're chosen. That's chapter 1. You are chosen by God. So if this world doesn't choose you, oh well. If this world persecutes you, just remember, God chose you. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory, it's not just called you to have a relationship now, he's calling you with eternity in mind. In Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. There's a present after you've suffered for a little while. Yeah, you're going through some rough times. But don't forget, as you're going through your rough times, God has called you. And at some point in the future, God is going to restore you. God is going to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So I love that two sides of the coin. We resist Satan by standing firm, but it is God himself who makes us stand firm. Mm. We resist by standing firm, but God causes us to stand firm. That right there is massive. God is never going to let you go. Jesus said, no one's ever snatching anyone out of my hand or the Father's hand. All the Father's given to me, yes. The very God who expects you to stand firm will himself make you firm. Restoring you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now God eternal. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That power will never, never fade. It will always be strong, consistent, true, forever and ever. Eternity and eternity. Amen. Let it so. You see, theology affects life. This class is called Masterclass Theology, not because I am the master, because we study the master. And in all honesty, 
Every single one of us is a theologian every time we open up our Bibles. You don't have to be some kind of, you know, old man with a white flowing beard on the side of a mountain looking for the, the sound of one hand clapping or something. No, you are a theologian every time you study God, study his word, study the Bible. What does it say about God? What does it say about me? Right there, that's theology and anthropology. Biblical theology, biblical anthropology. What does it say about me? What does God expect me to do? How can I be more like Jesus and less like me? There you go. That's biblical sanctification. You are a theologian every time you study God's word. Theology matters. What you believe about God helps you understand your past, your present, and your future. Just in these two little verses here in 1 Peter. Theology affects life. You might say, theology affects practice, how you live. So we have some closing words here. We have humble leaders, a word to the church to be humble. Here's some closing words. Um, Sylvanus or Sylvanus, you can pronounce it different ways. It's a variant of, of Silas. Um, a threefold purpose of First Peter and some chosen greetings. I'll read it without the variant. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, and that, by the way, is Peter saying, this guy has got my, I got his back. I am, he has my full authority. So no one's questioning Silas after verse 12. Okay. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Now, who in the world is this Silas? Silas would be somebody that Paul looked to as, dare I say, an equal, or close to an equal. Paul had someone, I'm not, I realize I'm saying Paul, not Peter, but he, he shows up with Paul a few times. He planted churches with Paul. Paul had someone like a Timothy that was kind of underneath him. Paul had someone like a Barnabas that he kind of looked up to, and Paul had someone like a Silas that was kind of equal in the faith, if you can a picture of that metaphor. So this is not some lightweight. This is not some random. This is the Silas. And if they don't know his name, they, these people are going to know his name. So who was this guy? Three options here. Any one of these three is fine. We don't know. The first option is, he is just the carrier of the letter. That Peter got it written down, and he's in prison or something. He can't send it to these people. We have no record that Peter actually visited, visited Asia Minor in this part, part of time. He's most likely somewhere around Rome. Just saying, so that Silas is the one who's actually carrying the letter. So when the letter speaks of Silas, that's like they're vouching for each other, basically. So that's what they did back then. That's option one. Option two is that Silas was the uh, amanuensis, or he was the secretary, the scribe that wrote this all down for Peter. That Peter is talking, Peter being more of a humble fisherman, not with the, the elite grasp of the Greek language that first Peter clearly has. But Silas, well, if that's the case, Silas was not, a, not, not lacking in the rhetoric department. He could write Greek like almost nobody else, if that is indeed him. So option one, he's just the carrier of the letter. Option two is, he was the scribe that wrote the letter and probably also carrying the letter. And option three is kind of groovy. The text gives us this idea that with his help I wrote, 
it is entirely possible that Peter wrote none of 1 Peter. And that the Holy Spirit used Silas in Peter's name. Or that Peter gave an idea, this is the kind of thing I want to share to the churches. And that the Holy Spirit inspired because he's in prison, most likely. So maybe Silas or someone else didn't have access to him, like Paul later would have access as a Roman citizen, you see? Peter's not a Roman citizen. So the, the, the access part may not be there. Paul would get house arrest. Peter, we don't know. You know, church tradition kind of seems like the, the evil Caesar Nero kind of had it out for Peter. I don't think Peter's going to have any good accommodations here. So it is entirely possible that Silas wrote 1 Peter in Peter's name, and Peter's now saying that. Receive it like it's me. I personally don't believe that, but I, I, I can't prove it or disprove it. It's on the table. I, I'm fond of number two. Maybe he was a scribe, but that's a, those are some serious Greek chops. This is right up there. Maybe Hebrews is better Greek than this. Maybe. It's, a, it's just hard Greek. Much different than the Greek of 2 Peter. I have much more confidence that probably Peter wrote 2 Peter than 1 Peter. Like literally wrote it. Just saying. Those are three options. You can choose one. We, we aren't told. Regardless, we're, we're told the Holy Spirit inspires Scripture. So this is not, we're not taking him out of the equation. We're not taking any of that out of the equation. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you, testifying this is true, grace of God, stand fast in it. The threefold purpose of 1 Peter, to encourage, this is verse 12, second part of verse 12, to encourage a suffering church in an armpit part of the Roman Empire. To encourage, to testify. Hey church, you need to be reminded of these things. I'm testifying as one who was there. As Jesus' right-hand dude, I was there. I'm testifying to these things. And finally, to give him a kick in the rear a bit, stand fast. Three things that 1 Peter accomplishes mightily. Encouraging, testifying, and a reminder to stand fast. Closing greetings. She who is in Babylon, ah, this is a metaphor. John, the Apostle John, is going to have played the Babylon metaphor in the book of Revelation as well. Yes, I know Babylon could have various options. There, there are some people that think he's talking about Alexandria, and that was, was considered like a Babylon. Others are saying, no, this is the, the Persia Babylon. No, not in this time period. Peter was nowhere near there. Um, yeah, Mark, is, Mark famously is the one who goes down to Alexandria. And so he, he mentions Mark at this next verse. He's thinking, oh, maybe he's talking about Alexandria. No, it's, the natural reading is that Babylon is an exile reference, the evil exile city. So what would be the modern-day evil exile city in Peter's world? Rome. Rome with all the Caesars and the power structure, yada, yada, yada. She who is in Babylon... Well, who the heck is that? Well, she is chosen together with you. Ah, she as in the feminine word, ecclesia, church. Ah, yes. She, okay. She, the church in Rome. Okay, okay. Tradition says that was Peter's church. Okay, we can't really prove that. I'm just saying, she who is in Babylon, this is not some woman, this is a church, chosen together with you. You churches. You Christians. These are Christians gathering in Rome, 
sends you her greetings. And that would have slammed a bit home a little bit. Think about it. He's writing to Christians in the Roman world who are getting their tail whipped, who are going through a really rough time, and he drops the name of the house church in the devil's den itself. In the lion's den, the devil. Right there, she in Rome. Kind of a reminder, I bet they're going through it too. But they're chosen alongside you. And they're probably struggling too. They're sending their greetings. Don't forget them. Stand firm. You're how many hundreds of miles away? Stand firm. You're standing with them. You might be in a different time zone. Stand firm. As does my son Mark. Peter has no son named Mark. This is John Mark. The fact that Peter just casually says his name means that Mark was a name known in the streets. They knew Peter. And evidently they knew Mark. This is John Mark. The John Mark. The guy who had a schism with Paul and later would come back with Barnabas. Was, you know, a lot of people say, well, how come Peter doesn't have a gospel? He kind of does. The gospel of Mark. Just saying. Not his literal son. No, this is like a spiritual father, spiritual son kind of thing. But yeah, as does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Paul talks about a holy kiss. What in the world is that? Don't we have enough problems, Christians, back then? Oh, you just love each other. What are you guys, some kind of weird, you know? Well, yeah, that word is philemati. Uh, it has a similar idea of phileo. A word that's based upon that. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That kind of kiss. In the ancient world, family members would give each other kisses. This is not an erotic kiss. This is, it literally says, Philemati agapes. Agape. An agape kind of kiss. All right? That's like, I'm giving God glory with this kind of kiss. This is no eros. This is not an erotic moment here. In the ancient world, family members, doesn't matter if you're boy or girl, man, or you just, you greeted each other that way. You'll see it in the Middle East today. They'll kiss on the cheek. Sometimes they'll kiss on the forehead. Sometimes they kiss on the hand, depending upon who it is and who, and that kind of stuff. That's the kind of thing. It says, you are my family, and I'm greeting you that way. You see it in Italy. You know, come here, you know, one cheek, one cheek, one cheek, that kind of stuff. I remember, oh man, I remember when I was in uh, a Spanish class, Oh, I was this lonely, lonely guy. It was my favorite Spanish class of all time because we were preparing to go to Peru. And the teacher was Peruvian. And she said, when you get to Peru, you do not shake hands. Guys, when you meet a girl in Peru, you shake her hand and you must kiss on the cheek. <laughs> we spent the whole class practicing. It was the greatest class of all time. Me, this single lonely guy, every girl in the class had to kiss my cheek at least twice. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. It was like, you know, hola, hola, como esta? You know, it is move in, handshake, and you kiss. The guys, the two guys meet up, we just handshake, and it's all good. Maybe the, in America, we kind of bring it in, and we clap a couple times on the back, or kind of do some ornate kind of arm grip or something. But the two, girl, two, two women approach each other in Peru, they, they would have the kiss, and, two, and a guy, okay, that was my favorite Spanish class of all time, just because of that. I couldn't believe it. And she's like, and she's like come on, Joel, you gotta do a better job, you know, get in there, okay, yes ma'am, you know, okay. And, oh man. I had other things on my mind at that point. My head was swimming after that class. That's not what we have here. 
This culturally would have been understood. He is telling them, treat each other like your family. Because the world around you needs to see that. The world around you needs to see that family unity. And that who you have in common is more important than who you don't have in common. Or what you don't have in common. That who you have in common, Jesus, is more important than other things that divide you. So greet one another with that. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Thus ends 1 Peter. What a letter. At a time in human history where the church was really going up against it. To people who didn't have much to write home about. They have a God who loves them. Who cares for them. Don't ever forget that. And God expects them to turn to him. He is still their living hope. This has been Big Riff from Masterclass Theology. In 1 Peter chapter 5. Thanks for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode. And I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.